0: Welcome to Season 5 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders from Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr.
1: Welcome to The Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us. Season 5, first episode of Season 5 here today, ladies and gentlemen. September the 23rd, 2021, as we try to provide insights on Wall Street, Washington, and the world, helping investors become better investors and helping all of us, I hope, as I get to talk to our great, smart, intelligent guests uh, a little bit smarter at the end of every forecast. Uh, And somewhere in there, we hope to entertain you just a little bit. We're going to start out with one of our strongest, most popular guests, one of the nicest guys and brightest guys on Wall Street, Jim Labenthal, partner at Sarity Partners, regular contributor on CNBC. You'll see him on the Halftime Report. And as we say on the Farcast, listen to Labenthal.
2: Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Michael. And you know I'm going to respond with follow far. (laughs)
3: Follow,
2: follow far. Follow the fold and stray
1: no more. There we go. Guys and dolls early on this morning. Um, speaking of uh, Broadway shows, we have these shows going on all around the world. It's 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 uh, uh, like those uh, you know uh, Japanese theater in Washington these days. Uh, that was an awkward segue, Leventhal, but I'm just going to plow right through it. We, we government shut down, and then we had the Fed yesterday. You know what I was thinking as I was listening to Jay Powell explain that they might actually do something on tapering because we weren't going to talk about it. Now we are talking about it. And someday we are actually going to taper, we promise. We have gone from a Fed that was just pounding the table on being data dependent to now being data independent. I mean, it seems like we've gone to a, you know, stick the finger in the wind and we'll know it when we see it sort of a policy
2: at the Fed. It just struck me that way. Tell me what you thought your viewers or your listeners, our listeners can't see the wide smile that I have on my face as you gave that intro, because let us not forget that economics is the dismal science, right? Or whatever the term is. No, it's that's it. A, yeah, that's it. It's not an exact science. So I I, I don't agree um, that they're licking their finger and sticking it in the wind. But, you know, relative to hard sciences, where maybe are they
1: sticking it, Jim? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Maybe the, electric,
1: the, the electrical outlet
2: maybe. <laughs> so let's let's simplify this a little bit. I think we I think we need to start the taper. It it the, the continual quantitative easing at this per at this point isn't serving a noble purpose. Um, we do have to get to some sort of normal, in italics, economy. uh, One that is not entirely propped up by the Federal Reserve, number one, uh, and fiscal uh, uh, stimulus, uh, number two. So I don't think tapering, by the way, is going to have one whit of an effect on the economy uh, or on the stock market overall. I think the Fed's done a pretty good job uh, of telegraphing when it's going to start, how long it's going to take, and probably most importantly, emphatically saying it's not linked to when they start raising rates, because that's where you can say, okay, maybe we're mid to late cycle when the Fed starts to raise rates. i don't I don't see that for at least another year. And maybe people want that to be two years off. But you know what? One year is a lot of time in which the economy will grow, profits will grow, and the stock market will give you good returns.
1: Particularly, Jim, if this taper, as the Fed has said, is going to take six, eight, ten months, which means they start here. If they started in November, they're still adding and still purchasing bonds in June. You're, I mean, you're, this you're, you're exactly long right. ramp.
2: I mean, I'm, right? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that is the most important point. Okay, you've just you've just nailed it. And I was on CNBC yesterday. Steve Leisman came on, and we were discussing exactly that point. And what Steve said, he actually did the math. Um, there is another 660 billion dollars of bonds to be purchased by the Fed if they start in November and taper over eight months. $660 billion. Now, that's cash that comes into the financial system and needs to find a home. Where is it going to find a home? Is it going to find a home in the 10-year treasury that you know maybe goes from 1.3% to one5 maybe even 1.7%? Or is it going to find a home in the S&P 500, which currently yields on a dividend basis 1.3% with a heck of a lot more upside above that in terms of share price appreciation? To me, the answer is very obvious. That money will find its way into the stock market over the next 8, 10, or 12 months and continue to prop up the stock market.
1: Yeah, when you take a look at that yield to price sort of a ratio, you come up with about 5%. It doesn't, based on that metric, make the stock market look wildly, there we go, overvalued. And, you know, uh, we are about three P.E. points lower than we were a year ago. Now, that doesn't mean it was inexpensive a year ago. It was expensive. But it's not as expensive as it was a year ago by about 15%. Okay, that's a good thing. And how did we do that? We did that by watching earnings go higher. So for guys like I'm going to speak for Labenthal and me, when we see earnings and fundamentals improve, it warms our hearts. When we saw those multiples go up without fundamentals, we start to get nervous. Are you more comfortable? I had to do the Barons Big Money poll yesterday. Jim, I'm one of their panelist folks. You probably are too. And uh, they want to know where uh, we see, where I see markets at the end of the year and where I see the 10-year treasury at the end of the year and in June and the, in 2020. I mean, there are all these questions that you couldn't possibly have an answer to, but you have to give them numbers. And I said, I think markets could go up another 4% between now and the year end. And I added another 4% for the first half of uh, 2022. I thought that was very conservative. I mean, particularly during a period where the Fed's still accommodating. What do you think about what I added? And what do you think about Marcus writing here?
2: So um, you gave me a lot to work with there. I have to decide where to start. I think I am going to start with the big money poll. Wow, the big money pool. How do I get in that? I might just be the medium-sized money pool. <laughs>
1: I've been doing that for years. Uh, I've been doing that for years, and they used to send it in the mail with a dollar, and there would be a dollar bill in the envelope from Barron saying, "Please fill this out. We're paying you to fill this out." I've done it for twenty years, and oh God, the 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 guy—I will think of his name. He's retired from Barron's now. He's a really nice guy, but he was such a curmudgeon who would call me and he would start the interview. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even tell you who he was. He goes, uh, yeah, I read your poll. What the hell did you mean by this? And uh, then was off to the races. So- uh, Well, having,
2: having teased you on that, I think I'm teasing you because you know that you are triggering me with the discussion of multiples and valuation and profits. And we think a lot alike. Uh, you're not gonna be surprised that what I say is the market multiple doesn't really explain or describe what the overall situation is particularly if you look at the cyclicals, the reopenings, whatever you want to call them, the value stocks, they're way, way below uh, what the market multiple is right now, which is roughly roughly 20 times next year's earnings. But you look at the financials, they're 10, 12 times. You look at the industrials, they're high teens. Uh, you know, energy, materials, all of these stocks, you, you start to look at their dividend yields way higher than the market overall. So I, I should quickly say I'm not negative on on large cap growth or large cap tech, um, I think the Fang stocks have some good potential to return from here over the next 12 months. But I don't think they will be leadership in the markets. I think that that again reopening is what I'm calling a trade, which has fizzled hard, fizzled hard. Yes, over it has. Four oh, yeah. Months. I think it's poised to come back as the delta surge looks like it has peaked. Now, I don't want to do the epidemiologist routine, but if you look at the numbers, the case counts, it looks like it's peaked. And that means people are going to get going again. The economy is going to reopen again, re-reopen, and those stocks are going to surge. Um, So you put this all together. You said 4% from here to the year end. Yes, I agree. I think it could be a little bit more. Let me state it another way. I think easily we'll make a new high on the S&P 500 before the year end. Yes. Uh, what we have to do is get through some of the short-term issues, and they are short-term, that are facing us. You listed them. Uh, the potential for a uh, government shutdown, the debt ceiling uh, uh, debate. Uh, it shouldn't be a debate. We know we know the debt ceiling will be raised or, or, or paused, but we've got to go through this kabuki-like drama in the meantime. Well, why do we have
1: a debt ceiling? Why? All they do is raise it, and then nobody gives a damn, and we've got 150% debt to GDP.
2: Yeah. And you know what, Michael? The only debt ceiling that's going to matter is when interest rates rise. That's the only thing that will turn off the, the uh, debt-financed uh, splurge that government's been going through for decades. Uh, the bond vigilantes are asleep, or 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 they're hobbled by interest rates overseas. Um, until interest rates rise, you're going to see more deficit spending. You're going to see the debt level go up. And you're absolutely right. Why have a debt ceiling?
1: I want to go back, Jim. You suggested that the value stocks would begin to outperform. You also suggested that a lot of this was going to be COVID dependent. I'm seeing something else that I, I, I just want to weigh in, which is uh, that yield on the 10 year treasury to me seems to be seminal in the performance of those high tech stocks. Because you discount those future cash flows for all of those big high tech stocks, and you come up with a very different number at one and three quarters on a 10 year treasury as an interest rate uh, computation, as opposed to a one and a quarter. You change that by a half a percent. And maybe I, I can go back and check to see if the Delta variant actually coincided with the yield on the 10 year treasury. But to me, That 10-year Treasury is what changes those fundamentals, those interest rates, on how people look at the future cash flows on those tech stocks. When the interest rates came down, those things went back up. So if interest rates do indeed rise, I would think the interest rates, rather than the COVID, and maybe the COVID and maybe they go in tandem, but interest rates rather than COVID
2: will drive that return to value. What do you think? So you are absolutely tautologically right about the discounted cash flow uh, math. God, and I, wrote I love paper-
1: anybody who says tautologically. <laughs> it's just such a wonderful word.
2: Thank you. And you like it when it's associated with things you say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's wrote, never I, happened. I wrote a paper <laughs> on this a few months ago. It's on the Sarity Partners website. And if you compare what I call aspirational stocks, something like Roku, where its earnings are aspirational, many years in the the outer future, you compare that to a more traditional telecom stock like an AT and T. What you see is that the impact of rising interest rates has a dramatic effect on the share price of a Roku compared to an AT and T, because those earnings are so aspirational, so far out in the future for Roku. Now, here's where you and I may differ slightly. If you look at large cap tech, large cap tech, okay, the FANG stocks, those earnings are nowhere near as aspirational as Roku's or right. any of the other darlings. So, will they see an effect uh, from rising interest rates, a potential decline in share prices? Yes. I mean, we saw that earlier this we year, saw we saw it, it yes. in the first quarter, but I don't think it is actually justified by the math. So if those FANG stocks come down because, say, the 10-year goes from 1.3% back up to 1.75%, that will be a lovely time to invest in those FANG stocks because they they will have come down for unjustified reasons.
1: Jim Labenthal is a partner at Serity Partners. He is a contributor on CNBC. He is a great friend of ours on the Farcast and truly uh, one of the smart guys, really smart, thoughtful people we get to talk to on the Farcast.
2: Jim, thanks so much for being with us. Michael, thank you. And congratulations on season five. You now have a run that is rivaling the Sopranos or Entourage. And I hope that it can be associated with either of those names.
1: I, I, I Sopranos and Entourage and, and you know, I can't, I can't wait. This is just all really too much to take. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled. Uh, and uh, it shows you the value of self-production. Um, nobody's here to fire us. So we're just gonna keep it up, Jim. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back with Dan Mahaffey. We're gonna talk about China. We're gonna talk about President Biden's uh, approval rating. Uh, now getting to levels not seen since Donald Trump. And that's not a good thing. When we come back
0: on The Farcast. Michael Farr and The Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast, and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. We are back.
1: Thanks for so much for being with us this week on the Farcast Season 5. Can you believe it? And with us for five seasons, our great friend Dan Mahaffey from the Center, For the study of the presidency and Congress and his most important prize title of all, and you may have not even known it was a prize title, Senior Political Analyst for The Farcast. Hey, welcome back, Dan.
4: Thanks, Michael. Great to be back here on season five. And I want that like a a wrestling belt next time. I think we should do that, Harry.
1: I want a wrestling belt. Absolutely. And then we, we, you know, on the website we could have shirtless pictures of Mahaffey with the, uh, with the belt. Now <laughs> with that he's the, yeah, with the belt.
4: No, yeah, Maybe. as as long as you don't mind it looking like one of those like turn of the century strongmen, you know, fists. <laughs> you know.
1: Listen, you, you, you're, you're looking buff these days. COVID has been good uh, for your, for your figure here, Mahaffey. I'm proud of you. I really am. Lots to talk about this morning. And uh, now we're going to get flooded with, you know, requests for pinup pictures to Harry. Harry, work uh work to do your best with those, will you? We yeah, yeah. My,
0: my the email way. is h at farmmiller.com, and I'll try to get I'll try to get all the, the pinup pictures out to uh, you. Of of Mahaffey. You know, he's he's
1: in his very early 30s. He's a handsome man, mm. ladies, a handsome man. Okay, here we go. Dan, lots this morning we have to cover. Let's try in this order. The China let's do China. Uh the uh, perhaps a shutdown, the debt ceiling. That's kind of in the same thing. Uh, infrastructure and taxes. And uh, I want to know what you think about Joe Biden's popularity level now reaching that of Donald Trump's. Right. So uh, somewhere on my, uh, anywhere on that list, let's start with China and uh, this ever grand yes. real estate company, not with $300 so grand. million, dollars in exactly. debt. Ever, ever not so grand. Dan Evergrande not looking so grand this morning, $300 billion in debt, a debt payment to be made today. Uh, Evergrande says everything's going to be fine, but yet Chinese headlines are suggesting things may not be so fine and that the country should gird itself for perhaps a very unpleasant situation. What's going on?
4: Well, look, you have this company that was where Chinese people put their life savings into this company, their real estate investments. They thought this was the path to getting a a home. You have to understand how important real estate is for folks' savings over there and how they see that as their their main savings vehicle to have real estate. Uh, At the same time, this company, one of the biggest companies in China, trading its uh, corporate paper as if it were a second currency in many aspects in china the the ious that it had around different infrastructure providers suppliers all of this is interesting to see from the china side one i will look to it the the party is going to make sure that the the public stays calm through this if I were a U.S. or foreign investor, I would expect to be at the back of the line compared to the uh, domestic uh, paper holders in China. Uh, and finally, I think, though, we can't forget the, the party precipitated this crisis with Evergrande. They now, you know, they had announced that they wanted to cut back on the uh, the debt holdings of these companies to reshape how people look at real estate and the frankly competing with each other you know they say it you know we didn't want inequitable development but you know ultimately look beijing's going to bail out this company in some ways and they're not going to be worried too much about uh moral hazard because the the ceo is going to go to prison or get the death penalty
1: tell us how china has uh, put pressure on evergrande in ways employees- precipitated this
4: crisis. This has been part of the broader Xi Jinping push to rein in industries that he thinks has be, have become either too influential, too big, holding too much data. And and in a way they're kind of happy to to I think they're in a way happy to have this going on because it shows look at the, you know, the big private sector company isn't what it's uh what it's supposed to be. Look at what the uh, you know, the government's going to come in now and take care of you. Okay, it's so be a state this enterprise. Is,
1: this is the theme that you and I have been talking about for several yes, weeks sir. now. It's the theme yes. of our op-ed from a couple of weeks ago. If you want that op-ed, again, email Jennings at farmmiller.com. But that, that op-ed suggests that China is hurting its own economy because it wants more control. The Chinese government wants to control free markets. They don't want free markets. They want Chinese markets, however they define them. And in doing that, uh, they're suffering economically. There's a real cost to this. And uh, this is one of the best examples ever. You know, this is something, Harry, we uh, we we would have discussed on uh, today's show with Jack Ma. Uh, we were trying to get Jack Ma, but nobody seems to know where he is. Well, he's just,
4: he's, he's painting and relaxing at his <laughs> uh, country villa.
1: Spending more time with his family, uh, soon to be joined by the CEO of Evergrande, perhaps. We'll wait and see. Dan, let's move back to the U.S., The House passed a bill to increase the debt ceiling. Why isn't that a good, I thought, I thought that's what we wanted. And here, Nancy Pelosi's done it. Why are the Republicans upset?
4: We're going to have this package in some way. You think that the Democrats would let the vote happen in the Senate and hold the Democrats to it. I, what I worry about broader is I don't think, one, I think people are now talking about default like it's something to be played around with, you know, like they can put it, let's figure out a way to put the full faith and credit of the United States on the line. And somehow we can put that on the other party. Yep. That's the thing that both sides are doing right now. And I think that the government shutdown is becoming more likely.
1: We've been through this before, folks. And when we went through it before, the U.S. went from a triple A rating down to a double A rating. You want those rating agencies to look again now that our debt is almost 150 percent of GDP. Be careful, folks. You, you, we're going to be right. a single A. We're going to have a single A debt rating before you know what hit us. You're going to see that Brussels has a higher debt rating than the United States. How's that? You're going to like that one. So, uh, and maybe we're just going to say it doesn't matter because we're the world's, you know, reserve currency. Um, right. And I but, think
4: that there's a there's a bit of you know it's a bit of a game of chicken, and next week is going to be you know next week's frankly a big mess with getting the infrastructure bill over that line that the uh i think biden's meetings i think we can get to that when you talk about his popularity biden is now it's it's entirely in his hands i believe whether he can for lack of a better term land this airplane when it comes to both the bipartisan infrastructure deal as well as the broader package the meetings he had at the white house I think the, the one thing that works in his favor is thus far, Joe Biden is the only person who can bridge moderates and progressives like Joe Biden can. That's how that's how he got here, frankly.
1: Well, but but yesterday, it seems as he had a meeting from what I heard in the White House with Democrats, and the, the message was, let me make make me an offer and and uh, from the president and who knows what's going to come back to him. But uh, come, come back to my original question. Why wouldn't just lifting the, they they passed a bill to lift the debt ceiling. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't the Senate just
4: do that? Because the Republicans, again, they want to, they want to block this in a way that they think they can put it on the Democrats to say, look, we've raised the debt. What, what I don't think matters is you talk about the rating. I don't think the American people care about the debt, the way that they think it will Saddle one side or the other. the The question is, if Democrats are doing this in what in one sense, I think a lot of them are asking, why not just do away with it altogether? The debt ceiling.
1: Well, I, that's a very good question, by the way, because it doesn't matter a damn, and all we ever do is run up into it and then uh, and exactly. then get and then get rid of it. Uh, and all, and as, all it
4: does is is and all it does is sort of create this this artificial, uh, you know, it's like a speed bump in a freeway.
1: Yes, it is. It's a speed bump in a freeway. And it gives them some political. Right. Uh, I guess it gives them com- political a, leverage, you know, one side to the other. But a, a you know,
4: field on which to joust for them. But you know, no one, you know, no one's enjoying this. There's no audience having fun.
1: Well, but when you have that jousting field, you have uh, most of the American public right in the as the fence right in the middle <laughs> yeah. uh, between the two horses and the lances. And typically, it's we who will be skewered um, as they charge at each other. Uh, and And grunt, right. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, and of us who get skewered, it is the middle class and poor who will be skewered first and most severely. Yeah. Dance, what does this mean for infrastructure and taxes and those bills? I mean, here we are, uh, coming to the beginning of October in another week we're we're uh, we're sort of running out of year here.
4: even where they've tried to pay for stuff, the the tax burden hasn't been that terribly, I hate to say as onerous as they would have, you know, you'd think they would have been. But still, the the whole reconciliation package, as well as the bipartisan infrastructure deal, I, I think some form of this gets through because this is, for the Democrats, to, from Manchin to the progressives, this is their whole package. This is the deal. This is the ball game before 2022. And they've got to get it, that you know, this is where I think Biden wants to get the deal done. He wants to land it, I think, though, you you have to look at the priorities, the the bipartisan deal you've got. Look at what's already gotten through the Senate. I think that does that does better. You've got a better chance for that bipartisan deal, right. the, the five hundred and fifty billion of new spending. But right. ultimately, you know, look, I think Joe Manchin has been very clear, as we've always said on this podcast and in last season. And I think the truth is this season. Look to Joe Manchin. You're still gonna probably get a, a 1.5, I think, uh, package through. I would say it's 1.5. If I'm feeling generous, it would be about two trillion, but I think that's what you're gonna look at. And and ultimately they're gonna probably massage it and play some games in a way where look, it's a it's a five-year package. So the top line number is down, but they can say, hey, look at it. If it were 10 years, it, it would be 3.5. And by the way, if you like this free money, vote Democratic in 2022.
1: Joe Manchin, the most powerful man in Washington. Um, quickly now, before we go, Dan, I've got less than a minute. What can Joe Biden do to increase his popularity and get his political capital back?
4: Well, here's the the challenge. It, it, I think it comes back to the virus. It totally is a matter of getting this under control and a perception that the United States is finally turning the corner from the virus. And look, I think it was, uh, you know, it was Trump's challenge and Trump took it and kind of didn't even acknowledge it. Biden's acknowledging it. But this is a force of nature. The Delta variant is a is a terrible, terrible thing. And that's the main headwind.
1: All right. We're going to watch the virus. I'm also watching immigration, which is uh, seems to be a horrible crisis still on the Texas border. I'm oh, it's a terrible, at- terrible
4: crisis. And what, what gets me about that is it entirely depends on which channel you're watching.
1: It does indeed. It absolutely does. That's because I, I, I,
4: I, have a, I have a great app. You can watch the news channels side by side. And I watch them side by side sometimes. And frankly, I end up more confused than anything. But you just see it's it's enti- two different worlds down at the Southern border based on how these channels are covering it.
1: Crime, China, France. I mean, I, I think crime is gonna be a big issue well, for this next election we get there. Uh, China and France and uh, Boris Johnson, uh, uh, oh yes so we, this we've got
4: to do yeah we'll we'll have if you look at my friday column this week it's going to be all about the uh the awkwardness of AUKUS. but look it sounds like macron and uh, biden had a uh, making up uh, telephone right. call
1: Kumbaya. yeah yes. Kumbaya. Uh, Yeah. and well my, my boris johnson's uh, headline uh, this morning was and break
4: yeah <laughs> which, I, I love which, that well I, I loved him walking around the capitol the photo of him looking at the uh, bust of winston churchill in the capitol vault and it's just like i i you know boris johnson you got to love him but that like that, that big old ape was just ambling around the <laughs> ambling around the capitol when are they going to
1: have my bust here is what he was thinking you know yeah something
4: like that you know
1: ladies and gentlemen thanks so much for being with us this section now in our next in our next segment on the forecast we're coming back with Stephanie Link. Yes, the Stephanie Link, the chief equity strategist from High Tower Advisors. Not to forget I, Michael K. Farr am now the chief market strategist for High Tower Advisors. So, the two of us will be having a discussion about what we see for markets and what Stephanie's thinking about in her stock portfolio. And yes, I'm even going to cover the dreaded FedEx call from CNBC a couple of (laughs) weeks ago. When we come back, God bless you, Mahaffey. Thanks, bud. Take care. On the Farcast.
0: We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back.
1: Joining us now, what a treat, what a pleasure, ladies and gentlemen. Stephanie Link. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Stephanie Link, Chief Equity Strategist at Hightower Advisors. Uh, She is a CNBC contributor. She's uh, on uh, the Halftime Report and about 16 other shows that they have on CNBC. I think if if Stephanie forgot, got the flu, CNBC would probably have to go off air and start showing I Love Lucy reruns. I don't know what they do without you. And ladies and gentlemen, as you know, uh, Far Miller in Washington has joined Hightower Advisors. We are now partners in the Hightower uh, firm of advisors, and I am the chief market strategist, so I get to be partners now with Stephanie Lincoln. What a treat. This is like a dream for me. Hey, Stephanie, <laughs> welcome to the Farcast.
3: It's so good to be here, and welcome to Hightower. So looking Thank forward you. to partnering up with you and doing great things.
1: Uh, this is going to be so much fun, and we have you know spoken at different events together over the years and appeared on TV together and we really do see a whole lot of the world together. Stephanie, we've seen markets kind of pull back here a little bit. Why did they pull back, do you think? I mean, what was this 5% pullback that we've just had? What sparked it and is there more to come?
3: Yeah, I mean, we have had we've come a long way, right? From the April 2020 lows and so we're kind of a bit vulnerable to any headline that we don't feel comfortable with. I think this week it was all about Ch- uh, China uh, and their banking system and their real estate system. Um, we all we continue to worry a little bit about Delta, although the numbers seem to have peaked, but we still have uns- unknowns. Um, we are talking about, you know, we probably have seen peak growth in the US economy, uh, and that's starting to decelerate we have supply chain issues that's leading to some inflation. So those are the those are the worry points as i say. And the market always climbs a wall of worry. And you and i have talked about this many times. Yes. I worry when i don't worry about something because that means i'm complacent. On the positive side in the face of all of this, the economy is actually doing pretty good. Doing great. At, right? I mean you look yeah, at retail great. retail sales 10 percentage points above pre-pandemic levels. Yep. Industrial production is actually only two percentage points below pre-pandemic. So we've certainly seen a V-shaped recovery and maybe we take a little bit of a pause for the time being. Uh, I went to a conference two weeks ago uh, and it was an industrialist conference. And I heard heard a bunch of companies like 3M, you you probably are familiar with that one, Dover, Parker, Hannafin, Eaton, a lot of different industrial companies. They touch a lot of different parts of the economy. And all of them said, demand is just fine. It's the supply chains that are giving them headaches. Yes, yes,
1: absolutely.
3: And so to me, if I hear demand is fine, I actually think maybe we see an elongated cycle. Maybe we can stay stronger for longer, right? Uh, And that's good. Um, My only worry point is really inflation because I do think we are seeing it in pockets that are not transitory. That would be wages and shelter costs. But on the other hand, we are able to uh, have, the companies are able to have pricing power, which is very, very important. They're cutting costs. They're doing what they can. So um, I, I think that, you know, we, we fell 5% from peak to trough and with all the liquidity in the system that still is in place, right? I think we buy that. And I know you were buying.
1: I, you know, I was buying yesterday, uh, Stephanie, and yeah, I've been saying for some time, you know, there was something like uh, over four, it was almost closer to $5 trillion, $4.5 trillion in money market funds. Mm-hmm. $4.5 trillion in money market funds. And that doesn't include the bank liquidity. And when we think back to spring, where banks were actually putting money back to the Fed, they didn't have a better place to put it just to get it off of their capital ratios to make themselves look a bit. There's plenty of cash. Plenty of liquidity. When there's this much cash in the system and a market pulls back, the market gets bought. And that's what happened. So uh, I saw pullbacks in a number of different names that I own in my other portfolios. And I added yesterday, I added to about 10 different names. One of them, Stephanie, I think you and I disagree on. So let's, let's, let, me, let me go ahead for all of our uh, CNBC listeners who've been sending me hate mail <coughs> lately. Let's go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off of FedEx. Uh, uh, I have I love this company. Uh, I can buy a company like FedEx at what, 12 times earnings. Um, and they have had some costs and they hit a real bump in the road. And no, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't have any idea they were going to hit a bump in the road. But when you have a company you believe in and you like the fundamental story and you like this kind of a company in an economic recovery, in an economy that's growing, we're coming into holiday season and shipping, they do a lot of stuff that UPS doesn't do, of course. But I want to own this stock. That's my decision. I might be wrong with it. I've made a lot of money on it over the years. So I added, I saw that stock back yesterday uh, that came off and I added. But, uh, it, and I did that to a bunch of other names too. Stephanie didn't like it on CNBC yesterday. She said she wouldn't touch it. And mm-hmm. that's, those opinions make markets, folks. And 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 this is when, you know, to reasonably thoughtful, experienced professionals can disagree on something. Stephanie, why don't you like FedEx?
3: Well, and I was tempted, to be honest with you, down 9%, trading at 12 12 times earnings, right? UPS, their biggest competitors, trading at 16 and a half times earnings. So I was tempted, but I have to say that, and a lot of the issues were really out of their control. Supply chain, wages, labor. Um, uh, that whole thing, um and just some inefficiencies tied around all of those things. Um, I just feel like they should have put surcharges in more. They already have they've done three surcharges in the yep. last year and a half so I, I applaud them for that, and they're trying to be methodical on uh, surcharges. They don't want to price themselves out of the business, but at the same time you've got to run a, you've got to run your company and you've got to deliver on earnings. interestingly, revenues we're actually in line, right? So it speaks to all the companies I was just talking about in terms of demand is there. It's the supply chain issues that are really giving them the crunch. I just have had not a great experience owning this in the past because I think (laughs) their execution is very inconsistent. Um, And I find that there are other industrial companies that have better execution. So you're buying FedEx. I, I applaud you for that. Good luck with that. I was buying Caterpillar. Yeah, uh, that, yeah, you know Caterpillar is down 26% from its highs. Not in one day, but in, from its highs. And right, I believe right. very strongly in the US infrastructure market and the momentum that is building there. They are going to generate full, about a billion dollars in free cash flow this year. They're buying Love back that. Two, they're buying back 2 billion dollars in stock and you get a two, two uh uh dividend yield and the stock is trading at a 20% discount to the market. So I can find pockets within industrials just like you and we pick our spots. Um, I have no doubt that FedEx will get, get themselves fixed, but I just feel like there's other places. And that's the opportunity cost that I, I think about when I'm investing.
1: I want to take a, a look at Caterpillar. Jim Labenthal, uh, in our first segment, Stephanie, was uh, telling us that he thinks over the next year, we're going to see that return to value. We're going to see uh, perhaps the tech sector not be the top performing sector again. I, calling the death of tech has been just uh, a, a big mistake. Uh, For the past couple of years, a lot of people have called the death of tech. You and I didn't. You and I said, no, we can buy these other things, but you don't want to count these great companies out. So far, I think we've been right with that. But uh, and I I don't mean to say that Leibniz has either, but he thinks that the, the performance is going to shift back to where we were in the spring. What do you think? Because Caterpillar is the perfect kind of a name to own, particularly under that thesis.
3: Yes. I have said that you have, to your point exactly, you want to have a barbell. You don't want to abandon tech because the total addressable markets are just enormous. enormous. You want to have exposure. Right? I mean, enormous. And the free cash flow, I mean, I heard Google Alphabet has $100 billion in free cash flow. I just didn't, it didn't calculate because I knew that they had a lot and when I heard the number the other day, I said, wow, that is an awful lot of cash, right? Yes. And yes. so it's nice to have cash. Um, and uh, so I think tech is still okay. I think you want to pick your spots. I am I lean a little bit more on the value tech, like semiconductor, semi-cap equipment names. But I do own some FANG. They're so big in my benchmark, so I wouldn't not. But on the cyclical side, and the, especially the reopen names... Yep. They're down 20, 30% from the May highs because- I bought have- Disney yesterday. So there you go. Uh, that's another one that's- I added, I added
1: to it. Uh, you know, so they, they're having some trouble in China. They're having some trouble in some of their, uh, in India and some of their markets. But longer term, are they are, are they still going to be the number uh, one or the number two streaming thing along with everything else Disney does? I, I, I just, I like the pullback here. I've owned it for a long time. I just added to it. You add when things come down, right?
3: Absolutely. Uh, That's what they call buy low, sell high, right? And that's what (laughs) you and I do, right? Well, we try. We try, that's right. We We, we might buy low and buy lower, (laughs) but um, that's why in these these downdrafts in the market, you just pick, we pick our levels in terms of, in small increments, we don't have to be a hero and you buy a little bit. And then if it goes down more, you buy a little bit more, especially if we believe that the fundamentals are strong and intact. And so I like the economically sensitive names because I think even though we've seen peak growth, I think we're gonna see above trend growth. And the Fed told you that yesterday, they raised 2022 growth rate to 3.8%. That is above trend. And if that's the case, I think the economically sensitive stocks and the reopen names will outperform. And uh, so I wanna have exposure there. I'm about, I lean about 70, 30 cyclicals reopen versus uh, quality defensive growth, if you will.
1: And that could be something that continues to shift in your mind and your portfolio probably. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah that's I, what I'm if, hearing you say. I would
3: yeah. I would suspect first half of next year I'll probably shift it more e- even because uh-huh, I do uh-huh. think second half of 2022 you are going to start seeing liquidity drain out a little bit, and rates will go higher eventually. And so, you, you, i will pick my spots uh, in terms of the cyclicality that I want. And we have to watch out on this inflation side of things because that is going to eat into earnings and margins for se- several companies.
1: I, I've got two things I want to get to with you, and I know we're running out of time here. Um, let's see. On on the uh, going back to the Fed, it seems to me that they have sort of shifted, Stephanie. They said earlier i mean if we go back 6 months or 8 months the fed was resoundingly data dependent we are data dependent it's going to guide policy that seems to be over with we seem to be data independent now mm-hmm. in uh, in our decision making <laughs> we've just decided we're going to do this and we're going to keep telling you we're going to do this and i guess we're going to do this but even if they start with this taper that means they're going to be you know uh, providing less accommodation but they're still going to be providing accommodation and it's going to last 8 months to, for this for this uh, taper. So in it, we're still gonna be having Fed bond purchases in June. I mean, even yes. if they start in November, right? So they're still
3: adding money to the markets. It's it's really astounding. I we we definitely do not need it uh in terms of the emergency policy. That's what I would call this. It's emergency, right? This yes, is what we need. Right. Back- I think you're right. You know, 2020, we needed it. We don't need it right now. I mean, and especially when I say, when I hear someone like a General Mills yesterday who reported a very good quarter, but guided uh, flat on the year because they see inflation seven to eight in, percent in their fiscal 2022 yes. year. That to me, I almost fell off my chair. I'm like, okay, if we had, if we don't have inflation, then I don't know what that. That's not inflation. I don't know what is right. Um, but I look at wages. annualized, the average in the last 10 years has been two, so you're at 4.3% annualized, Um, and and we have 11 million job openings out there, and we can't fill them, and this is a problem, and that's going to lead to higher wages, I believe, and then, of course, we've got shelter costs. As the eviction uh, moratoriums get expired, shelter costs, rents are going to go higher, and so I think those are very sticky pieces of inflation.
1: You know, rents lag housing prices probably by 12 to 18 months. Well, folks, we're coming up on that now, and you're going to see rents go up. And of the of the consumer's average expense, rent is one of the most expensive things for the uh, for the middle class uh, Americans economically to afford. So this takes a bunch of dollars of spending out of the market that they're not going to be spending on other stuff. They are going to be spending it on rents, but we do have to. I think we do have to watch that. I think that there is a increasing risk of stagflation, where we don't see significant yeah. GDP growth, and certainly faster price increases uh, than we have GDP growth, mm-hmm. and that means less affordability to the average consumer. Right now, we're already there. We're seeing wage inflation that is at a lower rate than the CPI inflation. So, Prices on goods and services are going up faster than people's salaries. People feel better because their wages are going up, but actually, if they look at the end of the month, they're not affording much more. Mm -hmm. So that's these are all things that the Fed is wrestling with, the government's wrestling with, and as we hear this noise, so Stephanie, here's where I wanted to end with you, if I can. When you hear all of these economic things and you have to make decisions on a portfolio to buy or sell for the benefit of your clients, how do you? Listen to certain parts of that message and news and then get down to what you
3: need to do. Well, it's interesting because about 30% of my time is kind of what we call top-down strategy, economy, what's going on in the world, right. that kind of thing. That sets me up in terms of where I want to be sector-wise. What where do I want to be overweight? Where do I want to be underweight? But then 70% of my time is fundamentals, and I continue to focus on what my process is. And my process is. You own the number one or number two company in any given industry, and hopefully you can get it on sale, meaning a caterpillar down 26% because right. of concerns about peak growth, right? So right. I still feel good about the fundamental if I feel good about the ma- fundamentals, the management, the bench, the, the the balance sheet, the free cash flow generation, earnings, margins, all of these things are fundamentals. I put them all together. If I look at a stock and I say, all these things are still intact or have a chance to recover and the valuation is very attractive that is what i do and that's what you do too and that's what you did yesterday you you had a whole list of, of names you were yep. very confident in buying down
1: you know it's it's when you know you should yeah and you have to stop thinking about how you feel that's, that's right. you know I, that's what i think really good investors do do what you should and try and ignore how you feel how you feel doesn't matter it's like we learn on saturday night live you know doesn't, Fernando, don't be a schnook. It's not important how you feel. It's how you look and you look marvelous. Uh, That was such a great shtick on on Saturday. I can't, you know, you learn a lot from Saturday Night Live about investing.
3: Who knew? And you get to laugh too.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Stephanie Link is the chief equity strategist at Hightower Advisors, a CNBC contributor. Um, She's got a new title now, as far as I'm concerned. Here it is, my colleague. Stephanie Aww, Link, and, I'm so which excited. is one of the one of the greatest things I've gotten to say in years. Years Thanks. I've gotten to say. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Appreciate Thank it you.
3: a lot. Thank you for having me. Welcome aboard again.
1: Thank you. Always learn so much from you, ladies and gentlemen. That's it for another week on the Farcast, the first season, uh, first series for season five. First for season five. Here we go. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back next week in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. I'm Michael Farr.